Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy city executives empowered and healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist on Harley Street, London, specialising in gut health, fat loss and hormone optimization therapy for the over 40s. And often I see clients and they require other treatments as well in order to reach optimal health. And that can include counselling, psychotherapy and dealing with any traumas that they have faced with. And often after the age of 40, they might have had a divorce that they're dealing with or a death of a parent, sometimes the death of a child and a loss of uh, employment, perhaps. And they're having to redefine themselves. And it's a very important time. I don't see it as a midlife crisis. I see it more as a midlife opportunity to redefine the next phase, the next chapter in their lives. And occasionally it's really helpful to do that with a qualified professional. And today we have the privilege of having Julia Samwell on the show to speak about grief specifically. And there's the topic of what does it mean to lose a child? And I'm very glad that you're on the show. I loved watching you on the talk that Annabelle's had. Julia Samwell is a UK CP psychotherapist specialising in grief and an author of the best-selling book, Grief Works, Stories of Life, Death and Surviving. She has spent the last 29 years working with bereaved families, both in private practice in the NHS at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington and is the founder patron of Child Bereavement UK. Julia was awarded an MBE in 2015 New Year's Honours list for services to bereaved children and has made it her life's work to help families at the most devastating time of their lives. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. What a pleasure to be on your show. Good afternoon, Stephanie. And tell me a little bit about what got you into this specialism. It's such a sensitive topic. I mean, I think there are a lot of influences that I look back now and I hadn't fully realised how powerful they were, which was that by the time my mother was 25, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died. And my father, similarly, by the time he was in his mid-twenties, his father and his brother had died. And those were the most, you know, significant relationships in their lives, and they never talked about them. So there were these black and white photographs um, around the house, and I knew vaguely who these people were, but I knew nothing about them. And, you know, I find myself veering towards um, volunteering with a a bereavement service and MIND, which was a a voluntary organization. Um, But I think I was drawn overall to bereavement because there were these unvoiced, untold stories and messages that had so influenced my childhood. Um, And it has become my life's work. And also they say after a funeral of some sort, have you grieved and that there are different stages in grief? Do we all go through the same stages and do we hop back between anger or acceptance? So let's talk about the different stages and what you have found in your practice. So what you're referring to is um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, her phases and stages. And I think 
what is universal is that we all um, process grief through pain. Um, I think the sort of ideal steps, you know, from disbelief to anger to resolution, I think it's a bit too simplistic. And so what I think about is something called the dual process, that you oscillate, you move between loss orientation, where you need to feel the pain and grieve the loss, and restoration orientation, where you um, have hope for the future and a, a break from the pain, and doing one frees you to do the other. Because pain is the agent of change. Pain is what forces you to adjust to this new reality that you probably don't want to be true. I love what um, you're saying. Let's keep, the let's keep the microphone close to your um, lips so we can absolutely hear everything you're saying because sometimes it's dipping in and out so I'm not sure if it's moving around but let so tell you were talking about that pain initiates change so pain is the agent of change it's pain that forces us to adjust to the reality that we don't want to be true and it's often the things that we do to block the pain that do us harm in the in the end but in order to feel the pain or to bear, bear to feel it, we need the love and support of others. Grief isn't something that you can do alone and someone you love has died. It's the love of others that helps you heal. Gosh, it's, and it's so vital that bereaved families are given the correct professional support to support them during this time because everyone grieves at a different in a different way, is that right? Yes, I mean, I, I don't think professional help is the panacea for everybody because everybody has to find their own way. I think what is a panacea is that everybody has to find a way of expressing their grief and they have to find a way of adjusting to their new normal. And if it is by talking to professional, helping themselves, understand what they're having difficulty with, what's blocking them, and that can really be incredibly helpful and is vital for some families. But for other people, you know, it's going with friends, going walking and talking, it's gardening, it's journaling, it's cooking. So everybody has to find their own way, but you do have to find a way of doing both, about this thing of allowing yourself to feel the pain but also allowing yourself to have opportunities to have a break from it. Okay, and this is considered a trauma. And let's talk about PTSD and your work there and how you found that prevalent amongst bereaved families. So, I mean, I think PTSD is different from trauma. So I think with all um, losses, the circumstances of the death will have a big impact on your capacity to grieve. So a sudden and unexpected death, like from a road traffic accident or from a, um, a sudden and unexpected heart attack, that is a traumatic death because you have absolutely no preparation and maybe the person you're with witnesses it. And so that you can get PTSD from that. And people talk about that as grief with the volume turned up. Um, so every feeling that you have around grief of, of shock, of horror, of fear, of 
not being able to cope or finding it unbearable, all of that is intensified. But obviously, any death, you can never fully be prepared for, even if it's your 90-year-old mum that you know is dying peacefully in her sleep. The moment she actually dies is always a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, but it isn't um, traumatic, but it is very distressing. So there's a spectrum, you know, of of expected death that you can kind of live with and sudden and unexpected death, which is much harder. And also the difference between losing a parent, as you've just described, and also losing a child. So I know of a family who have had the misfortune of losing two children in, in sh- such Gosh. a sh- short space of time. And uh, what is, is there a difference in how we react to, to that, someone who's in, the, in, in an elderly phase in their life versus someone who's your child? Yes, I mean, I think the most basic understanding of that is that it tears up the rule book of life. You know, you're never meant to or expect to bury your child, whereas as much as we may be devastated by the death of our parent, we know that that is the natural order of life. So when our child dies, or in your, your friend's case, the devastation of two children, it's, you don't know where to begin about what you trust anymore, what do you believe in, what are you for? You know, it, you have to kind of rebuild everything to dare to find a way of what is life worth living for. Um, and it's, it's a long, complex adjustment. Do parents blame themselves? Do they feel guilty that they should have done something differently? Or I mean, I think what's complicated is that as a parent in our heart, we feel the sort of definition of being a good parent is that our children thrive and do well. Um, we may cognitively know in our head that if they die of something that we have no control of, that it isn't our fault. But I think in our heart, there's a battle between the two Mm -hmm. that at at some level you always feel that, you know, what did I miss? Or did I eat cheese when I was pregnant? Is that why they, you know, you come up with all the what is? Mm -hmm. And part of my work with families when children die is to allow them to express both sides of themselves where they feel guilty and not kind of block it but also to recognize their thinking so that the two can kind of sit side by side and over time allow themselves to come to terms which, with what in the end you can never be completely at peace with. But I think people talk about their new normal or they talk about an accommodation with this new reality. You find a way of living with what you never would choose to live with. Yes, and it can often stop the the family unit from maybe venturing down having further children and it can change one's beliefs about themselves and about it just changes your whole world perspective and if you are the friend or the family uh, extended family how how is it best to support someone who's going through something like losing a child or a miscarriage or an accident that's happened and if your friend or partner has lost a child what's the best way to to support that person I mean I think the most important thing is acknowledgement I think some of the difficulties about such a kind of traumatic death is that we don't know what to say and we're frightened of saying something wrong so sometimes we don't say anything at all 
or we sort of say something awkward that you're sort of, you know, trying to make it better. And the most simple kind of heartfelt um, support is to, is to say that you're sorry um, and to listen. Don't try and fix it, but acknowledge that this person is devastated and allow them to tell you what they need or what they want. And I think the other thing is that often people are there in the first weeks and months and then eventually everyone gets back to their life. Um, and if you are that close friend rather than someone that's more distant, but you want to maintain the acknowledgement of being supportive for the long term, not just for the short term. And that's what we could do is really being present and available, as um, many people call it, showing up, you know. Yeah, and for some reason, the Christmas period is a moment of reflection, but also a moment where a lot of families feel the loss even more. Some some people look forward to Christmas, but some people don't look forward to Christmas if it reminds them of the tragedy that has occurred. So what? how do we deal with the holidays if they if they're not as joyous as we would like them to be i think it's being realistic so of course you know it will remind you of all the christmases when everyone was together when your father was alive or your child was alive or your partner was alive so they're very bittersweet and so what i talk to families about is um to kind of recognize not to try and pretend it's okay, but to talk together as a family, recognizing this is going to be difficult. Um, and if they have younger children or other family members, they may still want to have a nice time or as nice a time as they can. So one of the things they might do is light a candle to remember the person that's died and maybe read a poem or a prayer to kind of acknowledge it. Um, maybe go for a walk together and think about the person that's died and then agree what's a kind of nice comfort. What you want is comfort and safety. What would be a nice meal? Would it be too much to have turkey and all the trimmings? Maybe what would you like to cook that would, that would feel like it's still um, a special day, but it isn't trying to have a normal Christmas? I mean, other people go and work in the soup kitchen or they go away completely because they don't want, you know, particularly that first Christmas is the most raw. And that, you know, that's one way of doing it. But eventually over time, they normally have to find a way of incorporating both the sadness they feel over their loss and allowing themselves to have some kind of comfort and connection um, and Christmas. Yeah, Um I'm, I'm looking forward to Christmas. I have lost my mother over 10 years ago. And then my father is, is with us still. I'm sort of grateful for, for him. And um, I always make a meal that reminds me of her or something. Or a small tradition. And I, I, I don't even communicate it. I just sort of do something that I know she would have done. Or I purposely do something that she would have hated just to sort of laugh. Um, just a little private <laughs> moment to comment there. Um, but anyway, so... Because that, that, that's the key, is when someone dies, the presence of them has died, but the love never dies. So the relationship continues by the love that you have for each other. And if you have touchstones to memory through your life, whether it's your mum's favourite dish or her mom's le your mum's least favourite dish, uh -huh. or wearing something of theirs, 
or having something in the pocket. So I, I've got a new a client at the moment who has a stone in his pocket that they picked when they were walking on the beach oh, wow. when his partner died. So it's touchstones to memory that support you through the happy days after they've died and the sad days. It's, it's love and connection to them that continues. Mm-hmm. And the word peace comes to mind. So how do we make peace with the facts and gain closure? And is that even possible? I mean, gaining closure. I don't know if I've ever accepted that. I don't know. Is, is that even possible? I don't really go along with closure because it's a bit too mechanical, like one thing ends and another starts. And I think it's much more this idea of um, continuing bonds and a kind of new normal. So, and I don't think there's something as black and white as acceptance. I think it's much more the paradox that in the more you can find ways of living with the reality that you have and not fighting it and supporting yourself in it, the more likely it is that you are to heal and find a way of living and loving again. So the, the work, if you like, is facing the reality of the loss, allowing yourself to feel the pain, getting yourself supported to feel the pain, and then adjusting incrementally and gradually over time to your new present and daring to trust and live again in your new kind of landscape. And that is never leaving behind the person that's died, but taking them with you as you look to a different future, not the one you wanted, but the one that you can engage with and enjoy and have pleasure in. And let's talk a little bit about your amazing speech in in Annabelle's, because you were really fantastic. It was World (laughs) Mental Health Day. And I have to say, so Mm -hmm. many therapists can come across how can I put this? Maybe I shouldn't put it at all, but you came across so real, so raw, so authentic, so <laughs> personable. Your kickboxing, for example, the odd expletive, yeah. perhaps, may I say. But, you know, it's just, you, you say it as it is, and that's very refreshing. And it's a shame that you no longer offer sessions, because I'm sure people will be listening to this and wanting to, to get some time with you. But you have a list of organizations that... that uh, I, no, I do see people, but my practice is full, mm-hmm. and I have a wait list. So I, I'm still practicing. I have 20, 24 clients a week, um, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I, I also have a very big wait list. I, I, I mean, I really appreciate what you, you're saying. I think what I think what I've learned is that what works. You need to build a relationship of trust with the person in front of you. And it needs the more authentic I am and the more kind of truthful I am by being myself, the more that frees them to be themselves and trust themselves and trust the relationship. And really a huge part of um, grieving is daring to trust again, daring to have hope again. And if I can create a relationship where they can trust me and then begin to trust themselves, that they can then forge and use and harness for their presence and their future. Um, And that means trying and telling them I think they're an idiot if they're really doing something stupid or, I mean, I'd say it in a nice way, but by 
by being up front and not that kind of head to one side, I'm so sorry for you and not saying anything because I don't think that really helps. No. And, and on the other hand, there are a lot of really good therapists in the world, by the way. You've had a lot of, sorry, say that again, because the microphone drifted apart again. So say that there, again. Are, there are a lot of extremely good therapists in the world as well. Oh, uh, there are. It's certainly a calling, and it's not a, an intellectual academic pursuit. You must love your clients. You must, I, I say love your clients. Certainly, you know, the unconditional positive regard piece has to be there. You have to see them for what they are, not, not judge them, and, and support the best version of them. And I, I, it, it's so clear that that's what you achieve with your clients. And I want to talk about your books, This Too Shall Pass, and Grief Works. Oh, yeah. So what's, what, what, what is in each of those, and, and what, who, who are they good for? So Grief Works is um, client work I did, and it's divided by the relationship with the person that's died. So it's case studies of um, someone with a partner dying, a parent dying, a sibling dying a child dying and facing their own um, death. And so I think what people find helpful about them is what is the most personal is the most universal. So these are very personal stories. But there's something, you may go into the book because your partner has died, but you find something in the story of the person who's having a sibling that died that you completely resonate with. There's something universal through it all. And also I use reflections in the reflections I use research and um, all the sort of contemporary data about what helps us and I think people like both they like recognizing the sort of emotional process of of the grieving and that finding people do heal and give themselves permission to heal but also they like you know stats and what's normal and you know what they can expect um and so that's been it's been a a wonderful, I mean, I wrote it because I wanted to take the learning of, well, then, it was, then it was sort of 27 years out into the world, and if it was going to be helpful, I would be really pleased. And, you know, people come up to me all the time saying, I keep your book in my pocket, or I keep it by my bed. You know, it's really helping. So that's a lovely, lovely gift for me. Um, and it then led me to write this next book that's coming out in March next year, which is This Too Shall Pass, which is stories of crisis, change, and hopeful beginnings. And it's the same format. Um, it's case studies. But it's about, as you talked at the beginning, it's about living losses, not losses by death. So it's about divorce, losing your job, getting a health diagnosis, yeah. um, aging, menopause, or it's the sort of how you live and adapt through the lifespan, finding your first job, first love relationship. So it's divided by theme, family, love, work, health, and identity. Um, and it was lovely to write, and I hope that people find themselves in it and it helps them understand themselves so that they can support themselves going through tough times. And, you know, we all face tough times, whether they're death or whether they're just you know, a tough phase in one's life for whatever reason. Yeah, and a loss can be brought upon you. You can choose to lose something yourself, you know, whether it's a, it's a divorce or I have clients who have been told they've got cancer, they've got nine years to live or nine months to live or whatever it is. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a lot for, for uh, the human being to process. So 
Again, juliasamuel.co.uk, you have a waiting list. So if you are interested in speaking to Julia, then add yourself to the waiting list. There's also resources. On my website, I have um, a support system. It's called the Eight Pillars of Strength. I saw that on your blog. Which are eight things that if you... Yeah. So that if, if, if you don't do anything else, just look at those because they're things that you can actively do that can support you, that are sort of tangible tools to help you support yourself through a tough time. So have a look at that. And also there's events that you've got in 2020 that are going to be published next year that you are speaking at. You regularly yeah. speak at events, which is really good. And again, your book. So you're, you're yeah, very active. Yeah, doing a lot. It must feel wonderful to make such a difference to the world. I feel really lucky that I find something I really love doing. Um, and I, I mean, the thing that I love is getting to know other people and the connection with them. That's what really feels like such a gift. So I feel I get given a lot more than I give. And I'm learning all the time. And, um, and you know, writing is a new phase in my life. And that feels really unexpected and, and a, a real gift. So, I, you know, I just feel very lucky and I'm grateful. Yes. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for being so authentic, so compassionate and, mm-hmm. and authentic, uh, just really honest. So thank you for coming on to the show. I'll keep an eye on your events page and I will um, circulate them to my audience. And thank you so much for coming on. It was lovely talking to you, Stephanie. And thanks for such good questions. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you for all listening to the Urban Health Podcast, Keeping Busy People Healthy.